uh, for children's ministry. And for those of you uh, that have kids that are staying, we love having kids in the service and we make some bulletins that you can get for the kids in the back to help them follow along with uh, uh, the service and even with the sermon. And so you can, you can grab that now as well. We have been working through just kind of paragraph by paragraph our confession of faith. In the last four weeks, we have been looking at what our confession has to say about the Holy Scriptures and our confession, uh, what undergirds the confession is the, is the Scripture itself and the confession uh, which was uh, put together by uh, faithful men, faithful churchmen, pastors uh, in, in, in the midst of, of much adversity uh, during the time of the Reformation uh, uh, puts together the key doctrines of Scripture that make up what it is that we confess as a church. And, uh, and so again, we've been working through the Holy Scriptures, and I just short, uh, quickly want to read paragraph four to you on the Holy Scripture. The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. And so the scripture, in other words, is self-authenticating uh, because the scripture is inspired by God. So uh, I hope that that's just been encouraging to you as we're kind of slowly, again, just working through that stuff. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Esther, and we're going to be in chapter 7 this morning. Esther chapter 7. And as we saw last week, if you've been keeping up with uh, the, the, just our journey through this book, last week was really what I believe to be perhaps one of the most critical chapters because it's there that we saw uh, Haman's demise, um, that, that the very thing that he thought he was building to, the Lord put him uh, to open shame. And, and again, we're, we're continually seeing God's providential hand that while his name is not mentioned in this book and while the characters that we see in this historical narrative aren't uh, mindful or seemingly dependent upon him, at least to, to their own, um, the way that they operate, their comings and goings of life, if you will, uh, that our Lord isn't pushed to the sidelines, that he's the center player and that he's moving this along and he's protecting and, um, and preserving his covenant people, which is what we see him ultimately do for us in Christ Jesus. And so this morning I'm going to read as I have been the, the chapter in its entirety, uh, which is 10 verses this morning, kind of summarize some of what we see here and then we will make uh, just we'll have three takeaways that are included for you uh, in the guide. And so Esther chapter 7, the Holy Spirit of God recorded these words. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? She'll be granted to you. And what is your request even to the half of my kingdom? It shall be fulfilled, right? The third time that that promise is made. Verse 3, then Queen Esther answered, if I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we've been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed 
to be killed and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent for our affliction is not compared with the loss to the king. Okay, it's the way that that kingdom functions at that time. Verse five, then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Verse 7, and the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, you may recognize that name, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that not only you inspired it, God, but you've preserved it. God, we thank you that as we just read in our confession a moment ago, Lord, that it's self-authenticating, God, that the scriptures themselves are self-authenticating. And so, Lord, we ask that your spirit would help us to savor Christ more as a result of spending time in this word this morning, God, and that your spirit would also conform us more into the image of Christ. Lord, we want to be Christ-like. And we love you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. The the events here in chapter 7, they pick up for us immediately after the events in chapter 6. And so again, our our narrative, this historical narrative, has, has picked up a lot of pace if we were to compare the first few chapters with where we are now, it opens up with, quote, so the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther, right? That's immediately where we left off in chapter 6. And and just as prisoners on death row get their last meal, right? They They have their last meal. So Haman here is having his last meal before his execution. And, and it's a, a multi-day banquet, one that begins with eating and it finishes off with, uh, with drinking. And so it, it happens for a couple of days and the king doesn't waste time getting to the matter. He, he asks Queen Esther for a third time, right? Three times he's invited Esther's answer or what it is or the question her request that she had. He's invited that to be shared with him three times publicly, right? And three times she's caught the king in a good, generous mood. Right? And on this third time, we have this, our immediate uh, just the, the context, the, the background here, the fact that the king just paraded Mordecai through the streets, through the 
town square, if you will, and used Haman as a mouthpiece to announce his own pleasure in Mordecai. Right? So there, there's no backing out of this for the, for the king. We, we've seen that, just how God's providentially backing him into a corner, which means that there's no way out for Haman. There's no way that he's getting out, what it is, getting out of what uh, is coming for him here in this chapter. So the, the, the queen, she skillfully answers the king after this third request. She, she answers him in such a way that he's swept up unwittingly into this injustice in which he and Haman themselves have caused. Okay, that's the way in which she's going at it. But this isn't for the king injustice against a people. That's not what he's worried about. The king has, he has no problems with, with murdering. He had no problem with wiping out an entire people group. Although he didn't know who the people were that, that Edict targeted, he knew that he had signed the death warrant of lots and lots of people, and he couldn't care less about who those people were or why it was that he signed their death warrant. So, so the king doesn't, he doesn't care about injustice toward other people. And so we, we don't need to read that into the text, right? He doesn't go from this wicked man to all of a sudden he's, he's ready to do the righteous thing. We're not seeing a, a change of heart in, in King Ahasuerus or in King Xerxes, as some of the translations say. Okay, he cares about what he perceives to be injustice done toward his own kingdom. That's what, that's what he cares about. He cares about injustice against his own crown is what's getting him swept up in, in what it is that Esther, in her request. Okay, that, that, was, that was how Haman, if you think back, that's how he got the edict signed in the first place, Right? He, he, he got the king to sign off on something because supposedly there was a particular people whose way of life was a threat to Ahasuerus' crown and to his very kingdom. And so Esther is reasoning with the king here in chapter 7. She's reasoning with the king in that way, or she's formulating her request to the king in that way. And she, she first makes her request known, uh, or... or, or in a, in a way that just gets him angry, okay? If she can get him really angry, it's going to be a whole lot easier to move him in a particular direction. She wants to get the king full of wrath. So, so, she, her, so her reasoning is a bit like this, if, if you want to look down at the text as I'm kind of putting it this way, all right? This is the way that, that Esther kind of formulates the request, okay? The queen is targeted by a wicked man. Okay, that's step one. Thus, the queen's people who are a part of the kingdom are also targeted by a wicked man, which means that it's, uh, the, the kingdom that's being targeted is Ahasuerus' kingdom. Okay, th that's how she's kind of connecting the dots here for this wicked king. That's how she's building to the request, if you will, and you got to remember as you read that, that everything in that kingdom, everything in this wicked kingdom is in service to this kingdom, right? That's how the, the kingdom functions. The, this king and this kingdom enslaves boys as eunuchs and girls as concubines. So Esther's formulating the request in such a way that it gives the appearance of serving the kingdom well. So... 
She speaks up, right? Someone wants to do harm to me, which means someone wants to do harm to my people. And these people and myself are who make up your kingdom. This means that this is a direct assault on your crown, right? She, and she now moves in this request to be the, the representative, if you will, of these people that she's speaking about, right? This is, this is the moment for Esther, right? It, it means that she, she reveals finally after hiding for, for years her Jewishness, right? She's, she's revealing that. And even though we don't see her revealing that she's Jewish explicitly, we don't see that in chapter 7. We see that in chapter 8. But there's enough here to know that, that this really is the moment of reveal for Queen Esther. And remember, the king didn't know anything about that. Right, again, she's, she's, been, she's been hiding her true identity for years. Right? Now, this in and of itself could have been a death warrant for Esther. And remember, she's resigned herself chapters ago, if I perish, I perish. Right? Now, she hasn't lived according to the law of Moses for years. Maybe she really never lived according to the law of Moses. Right? And she's kept this big secret from the king, a wicked king, a, a cruel king who, again, has a wicked and a cruel kingdom. And we know from Herodotus, who's a Greek historian that I introduced to you in our very uh, first kind of uh, looking at the first chapter together, he describes uh, just how wicked Ahasuerus is in more detail that could, uh, that I think for us can help us to see just again how much Esther at this stage in the game by revealing something she's been hiding to this particular man in this particular kingdom is uh, probably a death warrant for her. Herodotus says this. He describes a response to the king um, uh, that a king had to a, name, a man named Pythias, who was a Lydian. Uh, and, and the response was related to a request that Pythias um, uh, made to Ahasuerus regarding the release of one of uh, the, his eldest sons from the military service. Okay, so Pythias had this son, his eldest son, he went to Ahasuerus. He asked Ahasuerus to release that son from military service uh, to the kingdom. And so this is how Herodotus describes it. He says, Pythias had early, earlier entertained him, entertained the king hospitably, and he contributed generously toward the costs of the king's war with Greece. Ahasuerus was so incensed, so filled with wrath, by the request that he had Pythias' son cut into two pieces and made the army pass between them. That's the type of man that Queen Esther is standing before, right? That is the wrath of a wicked, cruel king. That is the type of kingdom that he runs. So, so Esther, she couldn't have known what to expect from him, right? And, and again, so there's, there's no evidence of, of him being someone that's even remotely approachable, but she intercedes for her people, and she does so in a very clever way, and she does so in a very uh, selfless way. She, she represents her people really like a, a, a skillful politician, if you will, again, using the ways of the kingdom against itself. And not only does she identify with her people, but she also informs the king that her and her people had been, quote, destroyed, killed, uh, or, or sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. 
And, and many historians and scholars believe she's quoting the edict here verbatim. Right? This is another reason why I think this is the reveal moment for Queen Esther. She doesn't say Jew, she doesn't say Jewish in this chapter, but quoting from the edicts make this situation even clearer to the king. And, and by God's providential hand, the king doesn't respond to Esther in fury. He doesn't respond to Esther in fury. And his lack of wrath toward Esther, again, it's not because he's warm, it's not because there's some romance going on between he and Esther other than she's his favorite wife. It isn't because he even has, he doesn't have a keen sense of what's right and what's wrong. It's because, and this is where we peek behind the curtain here, and we see through what the author of Esther isn't saying, uh, what the author of Esther really is saying. It's because the Lord governs the heart of all men, including kings that think themselves to be gods. Right, Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So, so the king in fury, not fury directed at Esther by God's providential hand, but his fury toward this unnamed person. Right? He, he has this fury. He, he wants to know who it is that's planned the demise of Queen Esther, that's planned the demise of her people. And she turns and she points. Foe and enemy, this wicked Haman, right there at the banquet, drinking a glass of wine. Right there, There's even more clarity at this moment that we see here, right? She, and she calls Haman not foe and enemy of the Jewish people, she says, foe and enemy. He's, he's the foe and enemy of the kingdom. He's the foe and enemy of this king, right? That's what she's t- trying to highlight for Ahasuerus here, right? He, he drafted again an edict. This wicked man drafted an edict that was going to kill his favorite wife. So this is the aha moment. And it's here that perhaps the king realizes that he himself had been duped by Haman Right? It was the king's edict that went out, but it was Haman's plan. Right? It was Haman's plotting that would lead to the execution of the queen and to the execution of the man that saved the king's life, who had yet to be honored up until the last chapter, Right, Mordecai. And again, while we don't see any sort of confession from the king, you're not going to see him say, man, I was wrong or I messed that up. We do see that he goes out to his palace garden, perhaps to strategize in his fury, to strategize in his wrath about what to do. So the king goes out. All that's left for Haman to do is beg. And he begs. He begs. He knows what's coming. And he knew that Queen Esther, she had the favor of the king and that he no longer had the favor of the king. He no longer had the ear of the king. He also knew of the public relations team, the PR team that we saw back in chapter 1. And, and we see a call back to that PR team with the name Harbona brought back up. Right? He knows that the PR team is going to advise the king in a particular direction. So, so take a step back one more time and just even think about it from a public relations standpoint and for a king who's really concerned about image. Right? The, the king didn't bother to ask Haman who brought, who brought the plan to him. He didn't think to ask Haman about the supposed threat to his kingdom, and thus he signed the death warrant 
of God's covenant people, which also signed the death warrant of his queen and of the man that saved his life. Right? The king has publicly offered three times now to grant Esther whatever she wishes, whatever she, it is that she wanted to have, two of those times in front of Haman himself. And Haman just finished parading Mordecai the Jew through the streets, announcing that it was the king's delight to honor him. It's a public relations nightmare, right? So, so just from a PR standpoint, things, they don't bode well for Haman in this story, right? The, the king has to protect his own reputation, right? He's got to not show any sort of weakness whatsoever. He's got to protect his kingdom. And the winds now are blowing in favor of God's covenant people. And by winds blowing, I mean that God's orchestrating all of this. Right? So, so Haman's reading the room right. He knows what's going to happen, right? And that's the exact conclusion that King Ahasuerus comes to. Right? He, there's no way that he could come to any other conclusion given the context here. So, so the king comes back in and now he's seeing red, right? He's seeing, he's just pure fury and wrath. And, and he's seeing everything that Haman does through the worst possible light at this point. So he comes back in and he thinks that Haman is assaulting his queen in his own palace, right? He's begging for the queen to spare his life, right? The king walks in, sees the Haman fall onto where the, the queen was and thinks he's gonna, he is assault, he is laying hands on my wife in front of me. So the king sees Haman as a threat to his kingdom, and everything he sees now just feeds into that wrath. So there's no escape, right? Haman, he's lost his dignity. He's lost the trust of the king. And now we come to the place where he loses his life. And this is where Harbona, one of the king's supposed wise men, right, one of the PR guys from chapter 1, this is where he speaks up about the gallows that Haman had built for Mordecai. And we could ask, why didn't Harbona speak up sooner about this? And while we don't know for sure, we can say with some measure of confidence that it wasn't politically expedient to mention it previously, right? We could even say from a providential standpoint that God had his mouth closed until God wanted his mouth to be open about the plan, right? That the wise men were more so put in place to give the king the desires of his heart and not to actually counsel the king. So Harbona, Harbona saw the, the wrath of the king, and so he does what he always, you know, what he is there to do. He's going to feed the desire of the king's heart. So he's going to feed into that wrath. So our chapter ends with the king publicly hanging Haman in front of Haman's own house, right? Something that, that should strike terror, or that should have striked terror into the hearts of everyone that's in opposition to, to the king's kingdom, right? So in reality, what we should see, what we walk away from seeing is the Lord protecting and, and preserving his very covenant people in exile in Babylon. It, just, because of his, just because his covenant people are in Babylon, just because they're willfully still there, doesn't mean that he's not preserving them. Right. So a few things for us to see in, this, in the text this morning, and you can, you can find these in your, your worship guide, so you don't have to rush to jot them down. But kids, if you're taking notes, and you can use your parents' guide to, to Write the, the, to fill in the blank here. 
But the first is this that we need to see from this text, and, and we'll connect the dots as we go, that Jesus is our representative. Jesus is our representative. All right, we see Esther in this chapter as the representative of her people. Right, that's, that's what we seem, the, the queen, has, she's risen to the challenge, right? And while it was a sinful and windy road, that led to this very moment, we see Esther stand before her king, right, a wicked king, not knowing, or perhaps better put, knowing that death awaits her, right? She stands before him, and she, she doesn't stand as a queen, even though she's a queen, but she more so stands as a Jew, representing the Jewish people, Right? So, so God's covenant people, she, she ties the Jewish people and her own fate willingly together. Right? They're, they're, they're intermingled with one another. So it, it's, it's an Esther as a representative. Again, we, and we've seen the, the path. We've seen the, the, that windy road. We've seen the, the, the sinful actions on, on her part. We've seen the fact that she's hidden her real identity for years at this point. But, but in the moment that it matters here, we see her as a representative and we see a bit of a foreshadowing here. Right? We see a foreshadowing of Christ as representative. Right? And as God's covenant people, we need Christ as our representative. We need Christ as our representative. Because apart from Christ being our representative, apart from standing in the gap for us, there's, there is truly no hope. There's no hope. There's, there's a physical death that awaits us, and there's a spiritual death that awaits us. Apart, an, an eternal, wrath-filled death, spiritual death that awaits us apart from Jesus as our representative. All right, we, we all inherited a death sentence through the disobedience of Adam, right? And, and so as we see the death sentence of the, the Jewish people in the story of Esther, we should definitely know, be reminded of that we have all inherited a death sentence through the disobedience of Adam, who's the first man who was our first, according to the scriptures, he was our first representative. He was the one that, that represented us in the garden and every sin Before we say that's not fair, every sin that we have personally committed only serves to say amen to that very first sin in the garden. Now listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it in in Romans chapter 5, verses 17 to 19. He says, for if, because of one man's trespass, okay, speaking of Adam here, death reigned through that one man, okay, and here's here's the beauty of, of what Augustine, St. Augustine, calls the fortunate fall that gave for us so great a redeemer, okay? He says, if by one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, here's the, superior, here's the superior second Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ, You see the compare and contrast there that's such good news for us this morning? 
Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The great compare and contrast here. Adam, known as the one man. Christ, who's also known as is the one man, which tells us Christ, we should think of him, right, as, as what? Our second Adam. He's our second Adam. He is our better representative because he did what Adam could never do. And he did what Adam could never do. He represented us well, and it cost him absolutely everything to represent us. Right? He, he had to become like us. This this is why theologians call it the humiliation of Christ. The fact that God would add humanity to himself. That he would be not just truly God, but truly man is a great humiliation that Christ endured to become our representative. Right? Certainly, If we see Esther and we're cheering her on in this passage of Scripture, as we should be cheering her on in this passage of Scripture, even knowing the sinful choices that led up to that moment that God has redeemed the the sinful choices of all the characters in the story to, to this one big preserving moment in which he rescues all of God's people, which we'll see in a few chapters definitively, Right? If we see that and we're celebrating that, how much more do we celebrate Christ who knew no sin but became sin because he took our sins upon himself in his humanity and he represented us in a way that we could never represent ourselves so that we could be preserved forever. How much more should that encourage us and excite us and motivate us in our Walks with the Lord in our walk with the Lord. There's hope there. There's joy there. There's contentment there. There's peace there. There's happiness there. Eternally so. We've been singing about it already this morning. Christ being our representative should fill us with such hope. So he became what he hated sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he took our sin. And as we'll think about this more in just a moment, he stood condemned to save us, to represent us. And in this unfair exchange, Christ who received our sin, in turn by the Holy Spirit of God, gave us his righteousness. He gave us his righteousness, which the the, the benefits of both his active obedience and his passive obedience. We receive justification, according to Romans 5. We receive life, life. Christ is our representative. It means this. It means that we will be with our triune God forever. It means that Although we'll die in this life, that even our physical death is temporary. Because when Christ returns, we'll receive a glorified body. The dead in Christ will rise. And we'll, we'll be in the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity with our triune God, declaring 
with the angels, without any of the hindrances of sin and sorrow, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So Jesus is our representative. And because of that, we're eternally secure. The second thing we should pay attention to in this text is that we shouldn't put our trust in the things of this world. Don't put your trust in the things of this world. All of Haman's hopes and dreams were in the things of this world. Right? And this is where his God kept his focus. Right? The same is true for the wicked king, Ahasuerus, whose kingdom, by the way, no longer exists, whose kingdom is a footnote in the history books. It's rubble. But think for a moment as we've worked through these chapters together, just as much as you can, think through, and, and maybe you can even see your own life clearly in this. Think through man, these, these guys who are these players in this historical narrative, putting their hope and their trust in the things of this world. Think of how anxiety-inducing that is. Think of how stressful it is to live your life with a clenched fist, where you're trying to hold on to your power, right? You're trying to hold on to your wealth. You're trying to hold on to your control. You're trying to hold on to your security, which means you're trying to hold on to your God. And I'm not saying that wealth is bad. Influence is not bad. Power is not bad. Those things make great servants to our triune God in, in, in the advancement of his kingdom, but they make for terrible masters, they make for terrible masters, right? It's bad for us. Not only is it not bring glory to the Lord, not only is it a transgression of the law of God, which are the chief things that should be in view here, but it is bad for us to place our trust in the things of this life, right? And maybe for you, that's a 401k, right? Or maybe that's your job. Or maybe it's what you try to get from other people, respect, honor, trust, or maybe we, as I mentioned in our confession of sin time, we, maybe we elevate others too much to the place of idolatry and we put unrealistic and unfair expectations on them. Right? The, the, the point is, is that we have to direct our trust in the God of Jacob and in no one else. No one else. The psalmist says in Psalm 146, 3 and 7, again, I read a part of this in our confession of sin. He says, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there's no salvation, for where his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. And we've certainly seen that. We're seeing that with Haman, right? His plans are perishing. Verse 5, the turning here. Here's the good life for us. Blessed, happy is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord is God. And that God is the one who made heaven, in earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith. He's the keeper of faith, not us. He's the keeper of faith, keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. Are you picking up on some of the words in that psalm that are so life-giving, right? You will not find salvation in any creature or any material possession, Right? There, there's no friend that's going to grant you salvation and bring you the security that you're looking for. No spouse, no family member, no boss, no elder, no deacon, 
You won't find salvation in anyone or anything other than the Lord your God. And the psalmist says, again, he says blessed, which is closely associated with happiness. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. And what did our God do? He's the one who made heaven. He's the one who made the earth. He's the one who made the sea. He's the one that made absolutely everything that dwells in them. He's the keeper of our faith. He's the executor of justice. He's the giver of good. That is where our hope rests. That is where our salvation rests. And when you have that, when you, when you rest in that, you're resting in the Lord. Genuinely, truthfully, you have a sure and steady anchor that helps you weather the fiercest storms of life. Because there's people sitting in this room that have experienced unspeakable horrors and tragedy and suffering. And for those that have made it through, I promise you, they would tell you it's because Christ is the sure and steady anchor of their faith. Otherwise, what hope is there? Right? If you're going through that this morning, the chaos in life, and you find yourself riddled with anxiety and, and, and all of these different emotions, put your trust, anchor yourself in Christ Jesus. Don't put your trust in your circumstances. Don't put your trust in your health. Don't put your trust in other people. Put your trust in the God of Jacob. Put your trust in him. And third, the tree of Haman is an ironic picture of the tree of Christ. And I used the phrase last week, divine irony, because I think we see divine irony here. The Hebrew word for gallows is tree. It's tree. Right? That, that's a significant and ironic foreshadowing for us. Right? Haman was hung on a tree. Now, Haman, he deserved to be there, right? There's no, no one that's disputing that. And, and this is why it's an ironic picture of Christ in the cross. Right? Think of it this way. Haman, he plotted the destruction of Mordecai, but in reality, he was the one that was destroyed, right? Satan plotted the destruction of Jesus on the tree as he hung on the cross, but it was at the cross that Jesus crushed Satan's head, right? It was there that Christ bound the strong man, as we saw last week. In the death of Haman, we see the preservation of God's covenant people, because God destroyed their enemy, who was Haman. In the death of Haman, we see the wrath of a wicked king abated. In the death of Jesus on the tree, we see the preservation of God's covenant people, because Christ became sin, and he became the object of our righteous king's wrath. And in Christ's selfless act, he saved he redeemed his people, set apart from the foundation of the world by the Father, Son, and Spirit. Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 to 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles 
so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Right? Jesus, the cursed one. Right? Jesus, who died like a criminal on a tree. Haman deserved to be there. Christ didn't deserve to be there. Christ went there because we were the ones that should have been there. And as our representative, he redeemed us. He made us right. Our, our God, who is holy, 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 his wrath, righteous wrath, is forever abated because he poured out that wrath on Jesus, on the cross. And if you're in Christ, there's no more wrath left for you. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That's a wonderful thing. So in Haman's death, the image is for us the work of Christ, but it does so with great divine irony. And, and that's, for us, is, is a good example of God continually preaching the gospel to us. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, seeing this redemptive narrative just traced in our text. And as we read Esther, and as we continue to do so over these last few weeks, we need to be reminded, bottom line, that God really is a preserver of his covenant people. And for us sitting here working through the text this morning, when we forget that God is a preserver of his people, we only need to look back to the cross of Christ, just as it's through the cross of Christ that we interpret this very book. So Jesus is our representative. Don't put your trust in the things of this world. Instead, put your trust in Christ and look to the tree of Jesus because it's from there that his redemptive purposes for, for all of us, for those that are in Christ, were concluded, were secured. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for this time in your word. And Lord, I just pray that you would increase in us a gratitude for all that you've accomplished for us in Jesus. You've been so good to us. You've been so faithful to us. And God, so often the circumstances of this life cloud that for us. And we ask that, Lord, you would shape our perspective according to your word and that you would shape our hearts. And Lord, we love you and we give you all praise, all honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a time.